0: You can like my body, can't trap my mind not to ever be free. Okay? Free the black panthers. FTBP. Stand for free the black panthers. F up the black police. Feds infiltrated our movements for black leadership roles. But we still here, then the bill here. Up coins, hell, bro. Shout. We you think this shit won't be televised? Black power, be scared guys That be standing there like they paralyzed We safe for the system Cause we above the system We keep ARs and pistols Shotguns, that's worth the crystal But that's for self-defense Make sure we have no issues Be sure to leave it at the door If you have it with you This for them freedom fighters That lost they freedom Until they freedom We screaming carpe die This for the general Khalid Muhammad, we gon' make your day a holiday, I fuck okay, me from mad Free the Black Panthers, FCBP Stand for free the Black Panthers, it fuck the Black Police That 13th Amendment, tryna make a slave of me You can like my body, can't trap my mind, not forever be free Okay, free the Black Panthers, FCBP Stand for free the Black Panthers, it fuck the Black Police the our movements, the black leadership rose, but we still here, then the bill here, up tail broke. RBG, R.B.G., 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 R.B.G. Rbg. My sisters, my brothers, council, the elder, t- that's really all I need. We suited, we booted, don't do it, you stupid, we head to the armory. Black women and goddess regardless, my heart just don't follow misogyny, foolish stuff, don't tolerate it. Melanated, so you gotta hate it. rock upped up another conversation. Trump finna get inaugurated. Damn, unify or die, nbpp.org. First and foremost, the new Black Panther Party,
1: to be subjects of this government. We never had any say in that. We need our own nation. Penn America stands at the intersection of free expression and literature. And what that means is that Penn does not believe that literary culture can thrive unless writers and readers can write freely, think freely, and share ideas freely. We are a membership organization, so our membership helps us do the work that we do. If you want to hear more about what Penn does or read more about what Penn does, please visit us at Penn.org. Now, you're in for a dynamic conversation tonight, and I just want to tell you a little bit about our speakers. Dr. Tiffany Crutcher is a native of Tulsa, Oklahoma, who was thrust into the national spotlight following the death of her twin brother, Terrence, who was shot by a police officer in Tulsa, Oklahoma while holding his hands in the air. The murder of her brother compelled Tiffany to speak out against police brutality particularly the killing of unarmed black men. She has chosen to turn her personal tragedy into an opportunity to bridge fear and mistrust and help transform a justice system that has continually perpetrated injustice dating back to 1921, the Tulsa Race Massacre, where mobs of white rioters burned down her great-grandmother's community known as Black Wall Street. Dr. Crutcher has remained committed to organizing coalitions throughout the country that promote the interests of minority communities. She is the founder of the Terrence Crutcher Foundation and the Demanding a Justice Tulsa Coalition. (laughs) The Foundation's primary focus is criminal justice and policing reform, providing scholarships African-American students, communities, youth development, and policy advocacy. Our other featured speaker today is Onika Asoma Caesar. Now Jeff mentioned her earlier, she is the founder and owner of the Fulton Street Bookstore. She is a mother, a daughter of the Middle Passage, and a true Enneagram 8. She is the owner, as I mentioned before, of Fulton Street Books and Coffee here in Tulsa. I went today. It is fantastic. Um, It's wonderful, curated. It's a beautiful communal space. And it's a space that centers the stories and narratives and lived experiences of black, indigenous, people of color. She She believes in literacy, has liberation, and is proud to be your local book dealer. Nicole hannah Jones. Nicole is a Pulitzer Prize-winning reporter covering racial injustice for the New York Times Magazine and the creator of the landmark 1619 Project. Prior to joining the New York Times, Nicole worked as an investigative reporter at Pro 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 ProPublica in New York City where she spent three years chronicling the ways official policy created and maintained segregation in housing and school. Nicole started her journalism career covering the majority black Durham Public Schools for the News and Observer in Raleigh, North Carolina. During her three years there, she wrote extensively on issues of race, class, schooling, and equity. Now, um, before we begin, and I invite the speakers to the stage, I want us to take a moment of reflection. On this day, 101 years ago, at the historic Booker T. Washington High School in the Greenwood District of Tulsa, students and teachers were preparing for the school's prom. Now, that prom never happened, because on that night, the Greenwood community was destroyed by the worst demonstration of racial violence in this country's history. I ask that you please join me for a moment of silence for all the love, all the lives lost, and communicate, communal connections destroyed during this devastating act of anti-blackness. All right. Thank you. Now let's bring the speakers to the stage.
3: Tulsa. Greenwood by Jasmine Mann. The whistle of an unnatural wind gave word there would be a lynching of a Negro boy who shined shoes. Not a rapist, just a boy. A child boy, a teenage boy, 19-year-old boy still fresh in his days, and a wind that would not know the enormity of its crime until morning filled air with turpentine, an invasion led by clansmen, a hate that would outdo itself to a menacing ritual of fire, wood, and blood The bombs turned clouds into shadows of themselves. Single-engine aircraft hovered so low, the bodies under them thought the world was ending. How could it not be? Run, Negro. 35-ish blocks in a flame that spent days burning itself tired. 300 black folks murdered into anonymity. Greenwood has a soggy, muck clay, a damp inconsistency of earth, constitution, and bone. Some buried homeless in oak lawn, some trampled beneath the dirt, a history tucked away in attic floorboards long enough to forget all it once was. America has a way of dancing with its own delusions unable to keep count of its murders because then it would have to keep count of its murders. It's good neighbors. All insurance claims denied to residents of Greenwood and black business owners of black Wall Street and left the people holding their memory through tongue, folklore, blood, postcard, and church tales A people chasing a memory that wasn't supposed to become a memory at all. I just want to jump right into it. I don't even want to waste any time. Can we just keep it real and speak truth tonight? So if you're ready, I need you to scream that I'm ready. Nicole, we are so glad that you're here. Why was it important to add this poem about Greenwood in the 1619 Project? And what have you learned about the community, this community, through this project?
4: Thank you. Thank you, everyone, for coming out today. Um, Very honored to be here on this particular day and to be in conversation with you both. I'm going to answer your question, but if you've watched any of my interviews, you know I just go rogue. So I'm I'm going to go a little rogue, but I'm going to answer your question for sure. Um, So I am in Oklahoma on this day on purpose. Um, As states all across the country started trying to legislate against the 1619 Project and ban the 1619 Project, I decided that I wanted to go into all the places that were trying to ban us. So... um, (laughs) Thank you. Oh, y'all going to be easy. Okay. (laughs) Thank you. Oh, okay. Thank you. And it was important to start this here for a few reasons. So One, let me just state very clearly. Healthy societies don't ban books. Healthy societies don't ban ideas. And so it is necessary to go into the very places that are trying to suppress our history and force a confrontation with that history. And if any place understands that, it's Tulsa. Because the reason I wanted to come here is many people, as you know, found out about Tulsa by watching Watchmen.
3: That's true, that's true.
4: And thought that they were watching something fictional. And we know that in this state, school children weren't even being taught about the history of what happened in their own state. This is why the 1619 Project had to exist in the first place, right, because we know that there's history, which is what happened on what day and who did it, and then there's history, which is what we're taught about what happened on what day and who did it. And most of us learn the history that's been manipulated, that's been managed, by people in power to justify their power, and so they erase all of the things about our history that call into question the legitimacy of that power. And you can't understand Tulsa and not understand black America, and you can't understand Tulsa and not understand America. So that's why it was important to have the story of Greenwood in the 1619 Project, because when I think of a, a seminal event that explains so much, particularly when we look at why do black Americans struggle, right? Why do we have such an economic disadvantage? And what we're told, if you just watch, you know, popular culture, if you read the news, if you get a kind of common history, the, the, the manipulated history that we all get, is that somehow black people are the only people in the history of the world who don't like nice neighborhoods, who don't want quality schools, who like crime, who won't work for what they want, or you study history and it all becomes very clear that the circumstances we live in are the most predictable circumstances based on the history that black people have experienced in this country. So if you want to know why don't black people have wealth, it's not because we didn't work for it. It's not because we didn't work harder than anyone else to get it. It's because it was systematically destroyed, right? Yeah. If you want to understand it was violently destroyed, like, In the 1690 Project, we try to avoid euphemism in all ways. So we don't call this period Jim Crow. We call it the violently enforced, terroristically enforced period of racial apartheid because that's what it was. And Tulsa is reflective of what we saw all over the country. If you wanted to see the most intense violence, it was always in response to black prosperity because black people were not supposed to ever prosper because prosperous meant you had independence. If you were a prosperous black community, you stood in the face of everything that they wanted to tell us about what black people were. And it was an affront to white people, no matter their status, because black people weren't supposed to have success. So you couldn't tell the story of 1619 and the legacy of 1619 without telling the story of what happened here in Tulsa. And I think if you understand Tulsa, if you understand that you had a thriving black community, and that once that wealth is destroyed, um, I'm going to wrap this up or you're only going to get to ask me two questions. But <laughs> I thought a lot about, so of course we all know, there were, there were hundreds of tolls, right, where black communities, particularly pro- prosperous black communities, were destroyed violently. And we think about when um, an entire community or area gets destroyed by a hurricane or some other natural disaster, we understand that that community cannot rebuild on its own. So the federal government has to come in and give a lot of funding, because when every institution is destroyed, it is impossible to bootstrap your way out of that. But when black communities were destroyed, there was no help coming. Matter of fact, the federal government was working in concert with the local and state officials to ensure that what was lost was not only not replaced, but was stolen. So we can understand then how, when you destroy an entire district and offer no assistance, You can't dig your way out of that, no matter how hard you work, no matter how industrious you are, and that is the story of black people all across this country. It's not of people who didn't work hard, didn't acquire wealth, didn't get land, didn't build things, even though they had nothing, but that every time they did, it was systematically destroyed, and there was no help to get it back. So if we want to know, I think we're going to get to reparations, so I won't step on that. Next question. Um, But... This is why I had to come here. I had to come here, one, because they don't want you to learn your local history. They don't want you to learn your national history, because once you understand that history, it's like taking the red pill in the matrix, right? You see how the system was built, and then you know the code to destroy it.
3: Well, I think she answered all of our (laughs) questions. But before you know, I just move on, I would be remiss if I didn't acknowledge my father, Reverend Joey Crutcher. And he talked about you know this notion of having to just climb our way out of a hill, but we got some freedom fighters in the room. I want to acknowledge our District One city council, Vanessa Hall Harper. Our chairwoman of the African American Affairs Commission, Ms. Christy Williams, our national uh, reparations expert, Dresen Heath, with the Human Rights Watch. Our state representative, Regina Goodwin, is in the house. Our District 1 school board member, Reverend Jeanetti Marshall, is in the house. Former state senator and uh, BCW alumni, Jabbar Shumate, is in the house. Nehemiah Frank with the Black Wall Street Times is in the house. Chief Amazon, BCW alumni is walking around somewhere, local historian descendant. And our elders, Dale Bright, Joyce Williams, Margaret Love. And I have to give a shout out to my former teacher here, Ava Fisher, and my basketball coach, Butch Fisher. We love you. Okay, back to the regular scheduled program. So, So, Nicole, in your New York Times article, What is Owed," You respond to every excuse made against reparations. Excuses that my people didn't own slaves, and it's unfair to make people who aren't black pay for reparations. And so, so we have our own reparations fight. Right now, those same excuses are being communicated by our mayor, the mayor of Tulsa and for the Native Freedmen, what parallels do you see between our issues and the larger movement for reparations for the the legacy of slavery?
4: So um, one, let me just shout out all the advocates who have been working on reparations locally and nationally. the interesting thing about reparations is that is where even your most white progressive support falls off, right? So the same people who have a Black Lives Matter sign in their yard are opposed to reparations. And the polling is very clear. White, the majority of white Democrats, our so-called allies, are also opposed to reparations. So if you want to know what is the connection, it's anti-blackness. That, that is the connection. So when I wrote uh, What is old? It was right after George Floyd. And I was, you know, we were allegedly in this reckoning, which, of course, was very fleeting because racial reckoning in America is always very fleeting. Folks get real tired real fast, um, that you can't turn a 400-year system in two weeks of protesting, and also that you might have to actually give up some shit if you, you know, <laughs> want, want equality. So, sorry if there's some children in here, but you probably heard worse. Um, They did on Saturday. (laughs) Oh, I heard. I'm not going to do all that. Y'all are safe. You're safe. Um, But what was important, so so I'm watching, you know, all of this really superficial racial reckoning, like NASCAR realizing maybe you should not let people fly the Confederate flag there, or Sephora saying, oh, we're going to try to have 10% of our products sold by black companies. That's all well and good, but that's... Superficial, everything was superficial, right? Painting Black Lives Matter on the boulevard. Um, And I was like, if this is really going to be the moment of racial reckoning, we have to get to the root of it, which is slavery was not a racist system, it was an economic system. Slavery, you don't transport 13 million human beings across the Atlantic just because you don't like them. You do that because you want to economically exploit these human beings for profit And you justify that exploitation by creating racism. So as long as we can just think of slavery as racist, then we can say, well, we abolished discrimination in the law. We now have a legally equal society, so we have nothing left to do. But if you understand that slavery was a system of extracting profit wealth from black bodies and giving that profit and wealth to white institutions and white people, and then if you understand that the 100 years that followed slavery— 100 years of violently enforced racial apartheid, was also about trying to maintain that exploitable class of labor for as long as possible, right? Jim Crow was not about racism. It was about keeping a, a um, racial hierarchy that kept black people as an exploitable class of labor, which is why black people weren't allowed to move into neighborhoods, why they weren't allowed to attend the same schools as white children, why they weren't allowed to work certain jobs. Um, then you understand that making equality in the law was just the beginning, that you have to do something about that 250-year economic head start and advantage that white Americans got that has left an entire race of people with almost zero wealth. So to me, to focus on policing, which matters, it obviously matters, right? Uh, Police are the enforcement arm of white supremacy, so we know that policing matters. But most of us, thank God, uh, will not be killed by the police, but all of us will suffer from the artificial wealth poverty that, that we have all been forced into, nearly all of us. So anyway, so I, just, I was like, in this moment of reckoning, if we're not talking about reparations, we're not actually talking about rep- reckoning. We are, we are losing the power of the moment, and the benefit of having studied something for 30 years almost, well, not, maybe not 30, 20, I'm not that old. Um, <laughs> Because I've seen every excuse, I've seen every argument, and so when I wrote that essay, as you pointed out, I was like, I'm going to take every single argument I've heard against reparations and then, using my investigative reporting lens, systematically knock it down with data and facts. Yes, yes,
5: yes, yes, yes. Yes, yes,
4: yes. So what do we know about culture? The The most successful strategy against reparations has been delay until death. So when people say, you don't deserve reparations because it's nobody alive today who was in slavery. Well, people who were in slavery tried to get reparations. You waited till they all died, and then you said there's nobody alive. So this is what they've done, of course, with the victims of Tulsa, right? They've waited until almost everyone is gone, and then when the last three survivors are gone, they'll say, well, we don't have to pay now because there's no victims who actually experienced that. But. The debt does not go away. And we all know this from from the IRS, right? (laughs) The debt doesn't go away with with your death, And so we know that what we're seeing in Tulsa has been the template for denying black people reparations all across the country. Um, There are living victims, of course, of racial apartheid right now, right? Our parents, many people in this room who had to live through racial apartheid. and so we're trying to wait them out as well so that we never have to pay the debt. So I think that um, what is critical is seeing all of the tactics for denying reparations. And, and, and this is why I asked the, the white folks in this room to, to, to do some soul searching about where is, the, where is the opposition coming from? We know that black Americans were not given a fair chance to acquire wealth that we were locked out of every, um, every type of program or policy, including home ownership, right, uh, college educations that would allow you to get wealth. And we have to stop believing in this country that um, it's a zero-sum game, right? We can support reparations to atone for slavery, to make up for the forced wealth poverty of black Americans. We can also have things like universal health care and student loan debt forgiveness and a, and a living way. Like, we're a rich country. We brag about it all the time. And one thing that... I, see, I'm going rogue again. I'm about to wrap it up. Rogue. Go, go ahead. Well, one thing that we learned with the pandemic is that we can print money overnight if we want to. <laughs> right? So every excuse about... Yes, reparations might be the right thing to do, but we just can't afford it. We came up with $3 trillion overnight. Right? We bailed out businesses. We bailed out folks who already had money. But when it comes to people who, as a people, black Americans are the only people in the history of the United States who had, as a people, zero wealth because of slavery. In 1865, when we finally get our liberation, we enter liberation with zero wealth, and then every time we started getting a little bit of something, that got taken away too. So why would we want to be a stingy nation that doesn't want to acknowledge, atone, and then repair? That is necessary. We can't be moral people and then just say, well, everything is equal now, So why should we have to do anything? And this is where I I show all the arguments, right? There's nothing that black Americans can do on our own to eliminate 350 years of legalized racial plundering. So we go to college, we still have less wealth than white people who don't go to college. If we get married, we still have less wealth than white single moms, right? We save a higher percentage of our income than every other race, we just have less income to save we invest more in our children's education, we just have less money to invest in their education, so they still have to take out loans. Right? If we don't have children, if we do have children, if we get married, if we buy homes, none of that eliminates the racial wealth gap in a country set up on a system of racial caste. So we have to decide, are we going to be the country that we think we are? And if that's the case, we can't deny this past. And I do think that so much of the opposition to the 1619 Project, and other text, is once you know the history, you can't deny the truth anymore, then you know something is old. So instead we say, let's not learn the history because we don't want to pay that check. Yeah.
5: Yeah.
6: Yeah. 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 So I want to go back to the theme of anti-blackness, because one of the things you assert in the 1619 Project is that anti-blackness essentially serve to preserve slavery. But here we are in 2022, and anti-blackness is still going strong. We exist in a world where we have laws and policies that are race silent, but the impact of those laws and policies are not race neutral. So what does anti-blackness exist to preserve today, or what do folks believe it exists
5: to preserve today?
4: That's a great question. And uh, this is why they also don't want our children to learn critical race theory, like the real critical race theory, not the fake propaganda campaigns that um, places like Oklahoma have succumbed to, but what what critical race theory teaches you, if you have placed a racial hierarchy into the structures of your country, in its legal system, political system, economic system, educational system, healthcare system, for 350 years, That system still stands once you've eliminated the law. Matter of fact, you don't have to do anything. It's self-replicating. I'm going to give you a very clear example for everyone who seems so perplexed by this. It, It is not about individual racism, though. There's plenty of that, too. But we can just look at housing, right? The federal government creates redlining. We all heard of redlining. We think the banks did it, but the federal government created redlining. After the Great Depression, the federal government decides it wants to try to build a middle class, but of course back then the white was always silent, so they wanted to go to white middle class. And so they decided to start insuring home loans. Prior to that, if you wanted to buy a home, you had to put down between 50 to 70 percent, which meant most people could never buy a home. So the government decides, federal government decides, we're going to build a middle class by insuring home loans. And if we back these loans with the federal government, you only have to put down 20 percent on your house, and most Americans, or many Americans, could come up, white Americans could come up with that 20%. So the government decides we need to figure out which neighborhoods should we loan in? Which neighborhoods would be too risky and which ones should we loan in? And so literally uh, insurers who worked for the government sat down, got maps to the city and markers and marked in red all black neighborhoods and any neighborhood that was integrated as well as being unlendable. This is how redlining comes to be. And so, of course, all the banks follow the redlining, as do real estate agents because it's coming from the federal government. So, between the 1930s and 1968, 98% of those home loans go to white Americans. It is the largest program that built the biggest middle class in the history of the United States was when the federal government began backing home loans, and black Americans were systematically excluded from that program. So, in 1968, what happened? Anyone? 1968, we get the Fair Housing Act. How do we get the Fair Housing Act? What had to happen for us to get the Fair Housing Act? Anyone? Dr. King had to get assassinated for us to get the Fair Housing Act because the Fair Housing Act was considered the first civil rights act for the North all the white congressmen who supported the 64 uh, law, well, I guess Oklahoma was basically Jim Crow too, but Oklahoma's the South to me. Um, But then I'm like Malcolm X, everything south of the Canadian border is the South. Um, (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) so... The 64 Civil Rights Act, which was about public accommodations, and the Voting Rights Act of 65 were all considered to be about the South, but the Fair Housing Act was considered to be about the North, because how we accomplished segregation in the North was through housing. If you tend black people into a restricted geographic area, you don't have to segregate schools, parks, restaurants, because you go into the segregated school in your segregated neighborhood, and you go into the parks in your neighborhood, and you go into the shops in your neighborhood. So there was great northern white opposition to the Fair Housing Act because if housing got integrated, everything got integrated,
3: including schools.
4: Um, But then Dr. King gets assassinated. There's riots or, as we would call them, rebellions all across the country. And that's how they get the Fair Housing Act. So in 1968, we can no longer redline. It is now illegal. But we didn't go back and force all those people to integrate that were forced to segregate, right? We didn't go back in and change home values because what redlining did was meant the identical house in a black neighborhood was automatically worth less than the identical house in a white neighborhood. So when black people bought homes, their homes didn't appreciate. When white people bought homes, because these were white neighborhoods and we had a racialized housing system, their home prices appreciated. More wealth, more wealth, more wealth. But we don't reset housing values and say, now every house that's the same is going to have the same value, so all of that just keeps accumulating, right? Those structures keep working. So now you can be a non-racist white person, but when you move into a white neighborhood, your house is going to be worth more. And if you move into a black neighborhood, all of a sudden houses start becoming worth more. This is what critical race theory tries to help us understand, right, is that all these structures can be put in place, and it's no longer about the individual, it's about systems that were set up over decades, unless you do something drastic to dismantle those systems, the injustice is self-replicating in and of itself. And then on top of that, we still have racism. We still have banks that discriminate against black home buyers. We still have real estate agents that discriminate against black home buyers. So we have the structure and the individual acts. And I think that is what we all have to understand is that It is about individual racism, but it's comforting to think it's just individuals. What is discomforting is all of the people who say they want equality, are you willing to give up that artificial, undeserved home value that you have? Are you? No, right? Are you willing to say, let's get these reparations to black folks, even though they still won't catch up with you, but somehow you think that's unfair Um, so this is where we get stuck, is the beauty of it, oh, to get to what you kind of, what you really asked, I'm sorry, I did that whole lesson, this is my problem. So, the beauty of what happened after the Civil Rights Movement is up until 1968, um, we had explicit racism in the law. And then after 1968 and uh, 64, 65, 68, you no longer constitutionally can be explicitly racist, yes. right? So then we see this embrace of colorblindness, but colorblindness in opposition to taking race into account to remedy a 350-year racist system. So now if I say, well, we need programs to target black Americans because they haven't been able to be in an integrated neighborhood, they haven't been able to get home loans, they were kept out of getting jobs, then you say that's reverse racism, right? So now we can pretend, yes, you can be colorblind now because you have a 350 year racialized system that will continue to produce racialized results and you don't have to be explicit about it anymore. So now colorblindness is a benefit to those who want to maintain inequality. And they have adapted the language of the civil rights movement, right? This is how we all hear this one quote from Dr. King all the time. Right about content of the character, not the color of the skin, but you don't want to read the rest of that speech where he talks about you know coming here to get our money because the government passed a, right a check that came back marked insufficient funds. You don't want to talk about that part of the speech. So color blindness has now become dogma because it is a way to keep discrimination entrenched with a wink and a nod and say, well we're just treating everyone equal now, though we've never had an equal society.
6: Yeah. One
4: thousand percent. True story.
6: True story, I am getting ready to refinance my home, and so I asked my white neighbor if I could borrow her family pictures, so when they come (laughs) and do the appraisal. Next question, Um, Oklahoma's governor, Kevin Stitt, signed HB 1775, which prevents schools from teaching uh, black history to our children in public schools. Essentially, anything that makes students with families uncomfortable, we can't teach it, and we know that means some families. The 1619 Project uh, in this process has been used and weaponized for these fights. Uh, How do you respond to these attacks, and where do we go from here?
4: So, one, um, I bet many of the black and brown folks in here wish they would have had a law like that when we had to sit through school and feel uncomfortable every day, right? (laughs) I mean, having to sit up there listen to my classmates read Tom Sawyer aloud or being just completely erased from the curricula altogether. You know, I talk about this in the um, preface of the book that when I took my first black studies course, I became so angry because I I, I was like, you mean we had all this history that could be taught and no one thought to teach it to us? So all these years when I sat in the classroom I felt demeaned and degraded because I assumed if black people had done something important, surely somebody would have taught this to us. Right? Um, So how I feel about it is, in some ways, uh, it's my greatest honor that they would be so scared of a work of of historical journalism (laughs) that they would seek to ban it, because powerful people don't pass laws about things that are inconsequential. And what we know is that they see this as a challenge to their power because the mythology of America is what allows them to sustain the inequality that we all experience. If we believe that we are the freest, greatest country in the history of the world, capitalism is the most liberatory economic system in the face, in the history of the world, and anyone who wants to achieve success in this country can, then you can blame all the inequality on individuals and our bad choices. And it doesn't challenge power. It doesn't challenge what is uh, probably one of the harshest systems of capitalism in the world. Because all capitalism doesn't look alike. And you can actually have capitalism like in the Western democracies in Europe that still takes care of its citizens but allows for some free market. So to me, the fact that there is such fear that students will learn this history, um, speak to the power of, of knowledge. and that, you know, my personal hero, Ida B. Wells, said the people must know before they can act, and there is no educator like the press. And so I understand uh, what it means to have your work suppressed in this way. And what it means is you can't suppress it. Like, Republicans have been selling lots of my books. Let me be clear, right? Every time. <laughs> You know, when, when I first pitched the project, I had what seemed like a, an incredibly audacious goal. I wanted Americans to know the date 1619. This date, you know, we got here before the Mayflower on the ship called the White Lion. Every American child learns about the Mayflower in 1620. But that ship that carried our ancestors, which I would argue, of course, is more important than the Mayflower for the history of the country, has been completely erased. People know that date, even Trump supporters, you know, people who love your governor, they know 1619. They, give, they imbue that date with power when they try to suppress it. Um, understanding our history is powerful. They don't want us, you know, when, when I took that one semester class, I became an incorrigible student,
5: <laughs>
4: right? Because you start to challenge them. When you realize, when you start to see the mythology of your nation exposed, then you start to question, well, what else have I been lied about? And you don't become so gullible. You don't just accept these, these lies. And then you begin to challenge, because we kind of believe the society we have is a society that we have to have. Let me be clear. The critique of project from the left is that it was too patriotic.
5: And never in my life
4: have I ever been accused of that. But what I realized is, black patriotism is the true patriotism in this country, right? Because it's not performative. It's not about wearing a flag pin. It's about saying we have failed to live up to our highest ideals. And we are not going to abandon our country. We're not going to abandon those ideas. We are going to fight against our own country, generation after generation after generation, to force it to live up to its highest calling. Not just for us, but for every marginalized people which we have fought for.
5: And
4: you have to ask, why is that dangerous? Why is that dangerous? You know, I'm the face of the 1619 Project, but the book is written by some of the greatest historians in our country, right? Harvard historians. Not that we put putting the IV that was also funded to play uh, money on a pedestal, but I'm just saying, very credentialed um, historians. And who would not want your children? To read text written by some of the greatest historians in our country, it is the fear of being supplanted as the only heroes in the story, of having to acknowledge, there's there's a great deal of psychology, and he is about psychology, right? Because it is not a good thing to destroy a prosperous neighborhood in your city. That's illogical, unless you're racist. Racism is not logical, right? So when we understand the, the type of psychology that has to go into a country founded on ideals, of liberty, of God-given rights, we hold these truths to be self-evident: all men are created equal and endowed by the Creator with inalienable rights. While you are enslaving one fifth of your population, that takes a particular type of psychology to hold both of those opposing ideals in your head. And so the way that you hold them in your head is denial. That's why you treat slavery as an asterisk. That's why we don't want to talk about the fact that the man who wrote the Declaration occupation works to enslave people. The man who wrote the Constitution, enslaver.
5: Bill of Rights,
4: enslaver. Patrick Henry, give me liberty or give me death, enslaver. Right? You have to deny that because it's the only way you can deal with the hypocrisy of being a, a country founded on ideas of liberty while practicing slavery. Just to be clear, I'm not asking any white person to feel guilty for something you did not do. But we do have to acknowledge
5: it. We have to atone for it. And we also
4: to me we have to be truthful about our history. You don't have to have a personal shame for what happened a long time ago. You can
3: have shame for what you do now.
1: But you don't have to have shame
4: for what happened a long time ago. But what's always interesting to me is Folks want to claim the Fourth of July that you didn't sign that document yourself, you, you didn't sign the declaration, right? Your ancestors might not even have been here during the declaration, but you claim that.
5: You don't claim all that
4: shit. You don't get to just claim the good part, right? So you may not have personally enslaved someone. Maybe your ancestors had nothing to do, you know, we're not slave owners, but you don't get to claim the declaration but not the fact that the man who wrote that declaration enslaved his own children. You have to claim all of that. Is all that I'm saying.
5: Yeah. So Nicole, y'all getting some of y'all looking a little uncomfortable. It's okay. Yeah.
4: I feel like some of y'all have never heard me talk before. It's okay.
3: Yeah. <laughs> is my security
4: back there? Just playing. <laughs>
3: So so speaking about public schools in 1775, you've been very outspoken about your decision to send your daughter uh, to a neighborhood public school yes. in a low-income area. Yes. Tell us more about that, and, and have you changed your position on public schools now that all of these bills are being passed across the country? Mm. So um, I'm the least optimistic
4: person you will ever meet And yet, I have a profound hope in the power of public schools. I really do.
5: Um, I really do.
4: You know, there's almost no place in American life now that the public across class, across race, uh, across religion can intersect. Nine of 10 American children attend a public school, right? And it is, I I believe strongly in a common good. I believe in um, public schools at their best in shaping citizens and giving access uh, and giving the ability to transcend your circumstance. Now, of course, before I did 1619, most of my career was spent showing all the ways we failed to do that, right? But I believe in the power of public schools, um, and and so when I, you know, I started my career covering school segregation, school inequality, the unfulfilled promise of Brown v. Board of Education for black children, and I remember, you know, I was a young reporter, and I would be interviewing people and activists and, uh, you know, college professors who were all working in inequality. And then, and all working on behalf, they said, of black children, but then you would ask them, well, where do you send your children to school? Yes. Yes. And none of them ever sent their kids to school with the kids they said they were fighting for. Like, and I just remember thinking, like, man, that's so hypocritical. Like, how, how can you fight for kids that you're afraid to put your own children around? So, but I'll also say it's easy to have values when you don't have to live them. Which, you know, I didn't have any kids then. So I remember being like, well, when I have kids, I'm not going to do that. And then I had a child. And I had a child in New York City, which is one of the most segregated uh, big city school districts in the country. New York is top three most segregated cities in the country. Um, And I would live in a poor black neighborhood. And I had to decide, was I going to live my values? And for me, it was very easy. Of course I was. Because these are my neighbors. We lived in the community. I'm not afraid of our children. Now, my husband, you know, if you read the article, we had, we had some arguments about it. We had to do some convincing because he grew up in the military. He never had the segregated school experience that's so common for black children because the, when you go to a base school, the school is integrated because the military doesn't allow that type of segregation on base when you can control where people go to school and where they live. And he was like, we fought hard to give our child every academic advantage that we didn't necessarily have, and now you want to give that up. And I was like, yes, yes, I do, because I, I felt it was important um, to live our values. I think the black folks in this room will know when, when you come from a low-income black community and you show some potential, right, the first thing black folks tell you is, oh, you got to get out of here get your education, and get out of here. And so we're told as a people that success means leaving our folks behind. Success means going to white institutions, going into white neighborhoods, and abandoning our community. And it was very important for me that I don't think that's how you define success. And I actually think... That's,
5: good. that's good.
4: Our, I would never, of course, want to go back to the period of racial apartheid, But one thing that forced segregation did was black people across economic classes, lived in the same area, right? So we had that type of stability that came when all your professional folks were in the same community as the the maids and the janitors, right? But now, those of us who get that degree and get some success, we leave our communities. And then we wonder why they suffer. So to me, we know the help's not coming from outside. We had to save our own community. (laughs) And that's why I enrolled my daughter in a segregated school. And we live in a segregated neighborhood. And I wish more of us, it's so funny because I began my journey as as a school integration advocate. I still do believe that integration is the only way black children will ever get equal resources. But I also think um, we have to give up a lot for that sometimes. And... I wasn't willing to give that up. I I realized that we weren't going to integrate the New York City public schools, and so it was my job to use whatever power I could get for the benefit of our kids. Um, And when it comes to CRT, the thing about these folks is they're really not that sophisticated, right? So, I mean, I, I, I say this the truth They tell you what they're doing. So Chris Rufo, the architect of the critical race theory propaganda campaign, said... The overall intent is to destroy public education. So you, you make all these parents have no trust in public schools. You, you make them think their children are being indoctrinated. You make up things like, you know, the teaching force is 80% white women, and yet we're somehow to believe that all these white women were telling white children they were evil and racist. Like, that doesn't make sense. It just doesn't, it just doesn't make sense. But by sowing all these seeds of doubt and creating this frenzy, Then you get people to distrust the public schools, and then you say, well, everyone should be able to just take their money and go to whatever school they want. So let's have vouchers, and let's be able to, you know, go to private school. So it all goes hand in hand. So we have to, if we want to save public schools, and I heard y'all are on the verge of maybe going charter, is that right? Okay, I'm not going to bring that up. I'm not going to bring it up. All I'm saying is, Well, everybody knows I'm opposed to charter schools, because I don't believe in um, publicly funded private schools. So um, they're also anti-democratic, right? They don't have to comply with public records. They don't have to have elected school boards. They're not democratic. And you never see charter schools in rich white communities. Show me one, just one. And I've, I've covered education for 20 years. They don't go into those communities. They go into communities like this. Okay? So, anyway, um, I could
1: give a whole lecture on public school.
4: My point is... If you believe in strong public schools, you have to oppose anti-CRT, right? you have to um, oppose all kinds of measures, and you also have to uh, oppose all of the inequalities that we have allowed to fester because the reason black parents go to these schools is because they want to have some say, over oh, the education their kids have in schools that are not that they don't feel are educating their kids. And oftentimes the charters are better, but if those parents feel at least they have a choice,
3: I, least they have a choice. So you can't maintain
4: inequality yeah, and then say I'm a big because charter. Right.
5: Because parents won't go to charters if
4: they believe that they can get a quality education in their traditional public school. Sure. That's
5: right.
3: mm-hmm. uh, so real quick, uh, shout out to all of our public school educators, if you're an educator stand-up, Stand up. Thank you all so
5: much.
4: Thank you all so
3: much. And we are running out of time, and so I have one final question, and I'm going to turn it over to Anika to allow you all uh, to get your questions answered. So, this is for the Black women uh, in in the room. As Black women, we so often become targets of vitriol attacks. And on the same level, I feel like every black woman in the room can relate to the very public attacks you and your work endure every single day, Nicole. How do you hold all of that and keep pushing forward? Okay. And what it 10th, like, 10th, if you have a black woman like myself, mm-hmm. and for like black women in this mm-hmm. room who mm-hmm. are attacked mm-hmm. every day for standing up for what's just and for what's mm-hmm. righteous. Thank you so much for that question. I
5: um, wanted to just say
4: I hope you know how much respect I have for you. Um, you are such an example of what we should not have to do, but too many of us shouldn't, to be. We shouldn't be in the position that you're in um, because of what this country does to black families and black people. So I can't really give advice because I feel every black woman in here That's knows we do what we do because we don't have a choice.
1: And there's never a day, um I mean, I'm a human being.
4: Sometimes it, it, it's hard. Um, you get threats when people, you know, someone threatening to burn my mother's house down. When you're on Fox News and you get uh, some ugly things uh, written me, to you, I am a 12 year old who oh Google me now, and you can see the <laughs> things that, that people are saying. But, um, yes, that's, that's hard, but it's expected. And the beauty of studying history is understanding that you don't do this for <laughs> because you think you're to know, you get accolades, you do this work, take, take the work that you call um, I talk a lot about my grandmother, Arlena Tillman. You shared uh, your Mississippi background. My grandmother was born on a cotton plantation in Greenwood, Mississippi, as was my father. And uh, they were born into a family of sharecroppers. My grandmother had a fourth grade education. And when my father was two years old, she decided her children were not going to pick cotton. Like she had, like her parents had, like her grandparents, great-grandparents, great-great-grandparents had. And she got on the train to the Illinois Central. with a box of cold-fried chicken that her mother had fried for her and her two young children. And uh, the train was going to Chicago, but I always said we were so country. We got off the train too early and ended up in Waterloo, Iowa somehow. Uh, Thank you, but this black woman with a fourth-grade education was determined to change the trajectory uh, of her family's life. And she never got to see what I became. She never got to see what her resolve not to raise her children in the feudal south would do. Um, but every day I worked in service of the day that I can't repay to her. And so I don't ever struggle. I never lack the motivation because I know to whom I belong, my personal ancestors, my collective ancestors. Um, And these folks have no idea what motivates someone like us. So they don't know how to destroy us because they don't know why we do what we do.
5: Thank you.
6: Thank you. That's a word. That's
3: a whole word. Um, so
6: many of you had the opportunity when you came in to write questions on uh, these cards. I'm a first grade teacher. I was able to read all of them, um, and we don't have uh, a lot of time, so I think we may have time for two. So I'm gonna go ahead and jump into two. Uh, the first question is: young professionals who are recent graduates or starting their careers or young folks who are about to venture out into the world, uh, how would you encourage them to approach? Uh, these discussions
5: and
7: this work uh, as we
6: follow your work and scholarship.
7: Mm-hmm. That's a
4: great question. Who
7: asked that? Mm-hmm. What's your
5: profession? I was
4: never uncomfortable. I never, I never felt like I wasn't allowed to explore my information and talk to other women. Okay, so first of all, can we give a round of applause? Proud of you. Mm-hmm. proud of you. Um, So, you know, it's hard for me to give advice that will be specific enough to be helpful.
5: What I'll say is um, you can't teach what you don't know. So uh,
4: the biggest part to me is spending as much time trying to soak in and learn as much as you can. And it's not the job necessary to educate everyone else, right? Um, Unless you choose to. I feel like we often get put in positions where we have to both person or, you know, you get added on to DEI work even though that's not actually our job and we're not getting compensated for it. Um, <laughs> so I feel like, you know, when you feel like educated, you do, and when you don't, you don't. But the advice that I give to young folks, and this is a someone who is clearly no longer young, um, is that, you can only control that, which is in your sphere of control, which is yourself. You can't control how people are going to perceive you. You can't control how people are going to treat you. Uh, if anything could be gleaned from what happened with my tenure debacle at the University of North Carolina last year, is you can do everything these folks tell you to do, get every credential, get every honor, and they'll just change the rules at the end, right? We know that. So. You can't be worried about that. One thing that I knew, though, is they couldn't deny me for anything that I didn't do or did do, right? But I was—I can control my own excellence, and that's all that I could control. So as you go out and start your career, trust me, it doesn't matter what field you're in, we all face the same struggle. It's going to be a struggle. But control what you can control. It doesn't mean you'll make it where you're trying to make it necessarily. See, I don't give an uplifting talk. I try to be real. There's a lot of folks that um, were as smarter, smarter than me, as ambitious as me or more who didn't make it where I am, Um, but at least if you don't, you know it's not because of anything that you could control that you didn't do, and you can't worry about folks outside of yourself.
6: We have our final question of the evening, and before I ask this question, I want to acknowledge that at the beginning we took a moment of silence, and a lot of folks are saying, yes, let's continue to take these moments of silence, but also ensure that you are taking a moment of action. Mm -hmm. And so I would encourage... everyone that's here tonight, when you leave, before you leave, before you go to bed, early in the morning, whenever it is that you decide to take a moment of action, whether it's donating to organizations that are doing the work like the Terrence Crutcher Family Foundation, whether it is educating yourself and reading literature like the 1619 Project, whether it's following folks on social media like Nate Morris who will be sure to give you an action item and tell you who to call, make sure you are taking a moment of action. I also realize that as much as people believe that we enjoy talking about race and disparity and inequity, and as much as people like to say that we enjoy being divisive, um, that this is also heavy. Um, And so the question is uh, about hope, right? In light of all this, what makes you hopeful? Who has that? Mike Sherman.
4: okay thank you for asking i was i was going to say that's a presumptuous question but i won't say that uh, <laughs> so you know I, I i often get this question and i i know exactly where the question is coming from so i'm going to respect where the question is coming from um because I, I do realize that while i personally am not a hopeful person i don't find hope useful i'm more of a rage motivated person um <laughs> But, but I do understand that if people don't feel hope, then people don't feel motivated or the necessity to act. Right? You have to believe, even though I don't believe we're ever going to be right uh, in this country, you have to believe that we can dismantle these systems or why are we here? Right? What are we working towards? And, and so I, I really go back and forth between feeling completely hopeless that nothing will ever change. Um, and then realizing there were folks like, you know, in 1855, Frederick Douglass could not have imagined that the institution of slavery could come to an end in a decade, right? That would have been ludicrous to think you could topple um, the, slave, the slave state, but it did, right? And then you think about someone like Fannie Lou Hamer or uh, Rosa Parks or Diane Nash who couldn't have believed... It would, have, it would have been nonsensical to believe you could end racial apartheid by law in this country. hundred years of that. And yet they had to believe they could do it, or what were they fighting for? So I, I go back and forth between not having personal hope but realizing you can't give talks and ask people to go out and do some shit and then tell them that it's hopeless, probably not effective.
5: Yeah.
4: <laughs> so this is what i say. I think that hope has to be in action. And hope without action to me is useless. So when I think about all those people I just named, they didn't just sit and hope that society was going to change. They got out and made a change, right? Often at great personal risk to themselves. So we absolutely the beauty of reading the 1619 Project or any of the hundreds of underlying texts is you realize that everything we see has been created. It was all intentionally architected. None of it's natural. None of it's inevitable. So if you understand that, then you know we can deconstruct everything in our society that we don't like. But that's going to be some hard work. And that's going to mean actually putting some skin in the game and not just coming to my talk and self-flagellating because I'm being mean, but like actually doing something. So. I don't, nothing gives me hope, except my child. Um, But I do believe that we have to believe that the impossible can be made possible because it has been made possible. But it's going to mean a bunch of very good people, very nice people who are presently doing nothing have to turn that nothing and that hope into an action.
3: Thank you for your question. Shada Brown you got your action question answered Uh, last question inquiring minds want to know because this event was hosted by two amazing bookstores Magic City Books and Fulton Street Books and Coffee what are you reading outside of history and what do you like to do for fun last question
4: thank you for that because actually yeah all I all I really do read is history almost Um, my mom Two years ago, I asked for the, the, um, the four-part LBJ biography set, and my mom was like, you need to light the hell up. Like Nobody asked for that.
5: <laughs>
4: nobody asked for that for Christmas. <laughs> so she got me number one lady detective agency instead, which <laughs> actually quite great. Um, so what I've started doing, because I, I really do love fiction, but I, I always feel like I don't have time to spend on fiction because I always feel like if I'm reading, I need to be learning some more facts to wield against the country. Um, <laughs>
5: um,
4: but I, I just finished, so I, I started listening to books on audio while I'm out walking and things like that because then I feel like I, I can't be reading history because I, I need to outline the books. So I just finished. It's one of the best books I've read, but it's like two Bibles thick. The Love Song of W.E.B. the Boys. Have any of y'all read that? I'm telling you, it was, very, it was 26 hours on Audible, okay? It was very long, but it's so good. And then I just started Mothers um, on, on Audible, so I, I highly recommend it. And then what do I do for fun? I'm a very fun-loving person, in case y'all didn't know. Um, so I like to drink too much bourbon. <laughs> about to drink some when I leave here tonight and um, I love to throw parties and um, yeah just um, one thing that is always good to remember the 1619 project most of it is very heavy very hard uh, very depressing um, but also through all of this through the worst of circumstances we found joy love happiness um, we created right, like the backbone of American culture is all black. First literature, first American literature was the slave narrative. Only original American music, right, is gospel, jazz, hip-hop, and blues. We created culture. And so it's always good to remind ourselves that we have to nourish our souls, nourish our humanity, so that we can go out and keep fighting. And I think that's very important. It is, it, is, it is those moments of joy that we all find, even in the most horrific of circumstances, that sustain us to go out and fight uh, for the liberation of our people and all people.
3: It's never enough time, but give it up, everybody. Nicole Hannah Jones, Omika Asimow Caesar. Thank you all so much.
8: Good evening everyone. I'm Gretchen Crosby-Sims, the Executive Director here at the Institute of Politics. We are so pleased to welcome Nicole Hannah-Jones to campus for a conversation on the 1619 Project. And we're thankful to Jen White of WBEZ for moderating this evening. Thank you to our partners at the Pulitzer Center for making this event possible. As you'll hear in just a moment, the Pulitzer Center is the educational partner with the New York Times Magazine for the 1619 Project. We would also like to thank Ann Peters of the Pulitzer Center, Angela Watson of the Barnes and Noble on campus, and Jake Silverstein at the New York Times for securing print editions of the magazine for our guests tonight. These were hard to come by. Um, The IOP, yeah, thanks. The IOP hosts public events all year on a variety of issues, including 20 amazing programs in the next two months. The best way to stay abreast of them is to visit our website at politics.uchicago.edu and sign up for our newsletter. After the discussion, we will open up the floor to take questions from the audience. Please line up behind the microphone that will be in the center aisle, and remember that everyone is welcome at the mic. So, especially if you're a first year who might be nervous about asking a question, please know that we do want to hear from you. The question and answer period is the cornerstone of our events, and you are encouraged to come up. We reserve the first three questions for students in particular. Please, uh, at this time, make sure that your phones are on silent. If you need them, restrooms are downstairs. And in a minute, you'll be hearing a formal introduction from Edward Chung. Edward is a fourth year from Valley Stream, New York, studying philosophy and human rights. During his time at the IOP, he has served as the politics and identity facilitator for the IOP's Leader of Color Leadership Development Cohort. He is now the LOC's Leadership Development Coordinator. But first, before he comes up, I'd like to invite Indira Lakshmanan of the Pulitzer Center to the podium to say a few words. Thank you.
7: Good evening, everyone. Thank you so much for coming tonight for what I think I can assure you is going to be a wonderful conversation. Um, my name is Indira Lakshmanan. I'm the executive editor at the Pulitzer Center. We're based in Washington, D.C., and we're a nonprofit journalism and education organization. Our mission is journalism and education for the public good. And what that means in practice is that we support ambitious, in-depth enterprise investigative reporting at newsrooms, large and small, all across the country. And we also do educational outreach about those projects, bringing them into schools and universities. And we're very proud that University of Chicago is one of our wonderful partners in our campus consortium, um, where we regularly bring speakers to University of Chicago and also give out fellowships to you Chicago students who want to do their own reporting somewhere around the world. Um, and this project that you're going to hear about tonight, the 1619 project, is one that we're having tremendous success um, getting out there into uh, schools and universities with incredible demand. Uh, you may not know, but the Chicago Public Schools Chancellor has taken this magazine and our free curriculum that our education team created um, into every school in the Chicago public school system, which is amazing. And likewise, in Buffalo, New York, in Washington, D.C., and in lots of other school districts across the country, we're getting um, great traction and interest in how to reframe the history um, that is told about slavery and the way that we even envision the contributions of African Americans in this country. So you're going to hear a lot more about that from Nicole Hannah-Jones, whose brainchild 1619 was, who started off the whole project and wrote the lead essay in the magazines that you have. Um, and I just want to say how delighted we are that you're here and if any of you in the room are teachers or educators we hope you'll log on to pulitzercenter.org slash 1619 take a look at the free curriculum we've um, created and share it with all your friends who work in classrooms and with that I'd like to introduce the student who's going to be giving further introductions thanks for coming
9: Hello, everybody, and good evening. It is my honor to introduce the amazing and award-winning civil rights investigative journalist, Nicole Hannah-Jones. Ms. Hannah-Jones currently serves as a domestic correspondent for the New York Times Magazine, covering civil rights and racial injustice. She has written on the Federal to and Forced Affair Housing Act, the resegregation of American schools, and policing in America. In 2017, she won a MacArthur Genius Award. Being black in America means you've always had to recognize and acknowledge your identity and question your precarious place in the supposed land of the free. Ms. Hannah Jones has been able to recognize this as her interest in journalism has always been centered in her strong sense of justice. She won her first journalism award in high school after she pointed out the racial bias in her school newspaper and took up a teacher's challenge of either quote, joining the newspaper or shutting up. Since then she has reported for the largest daily newspaper in the Pacific Northwest, The Oregonian, And before coming to the New York Times, she worked as an investigative reporter at ProPublica in New York City. In addition to her reporting, Ms. Hannah Jones also co-founded the Ida B. Wells Society, an organization that looks to increase and retain reporters and editors of color in the field of investigative reporting. The organization is named after one of our heroes, Ida B. Wells, whose tireless and courageous reporting exposed the scourge of lynching to both the national and international audience. Currently, certain traditions or institutions look to ignore racial issues in the hope of creating a utopian post-racial society. However, in order to attempt to heal racial divides, it's important to acknowledge that they exist and examine where they stem from. Even if, as Ms. Hannah Jones says, the truth isn't always pretty. B. Wells also stated, the way to right wrongs is to turn the light of truth upon them. Through the 1619 Project, Ms. Hannah Jones has been able to effectively continue Wells' tradition as she issues a challenge to us as we move forward and progress in America. Stop hiding and confront our sins as a country. Moderating today's event is Jen White of WBEZ. During her time at Public Radio, she has hosted WZ's Morning Shift and NPR's All Things Considered. Next Monday, she will debut WZ's new midday talk show, reset with Jen White. Please join me in welcoming these two amazing black women. Thank you.
10: I ran away from home this weekend because <laughs> I wanted some time to really sit with this material mm-hmm. and I needed it I needed that time because it's a lot to take in but I want us to start at the beginning where the beginning was for you when did
4: this project first start to take root in your mind uh, okay uh, so I'm gonna give I just was talking to the uh, some of the University of Chicago students And the long answer is it really began in high school Um, three things kind of converged when I was a high school student my 10th grade year was the first time I ever took a black studies course my high school offered a one semester black studies course and it was taught by the only black male educator I would ever have and when I took that course it was like uh, a veil had been lifted from my eyes as if I were seeing the country for the first time and my place as a black person in my country for the first time. And I really became obsessed with reading about uh, the history of the black experience. Um, it was that same teacher who he was talking about challenged me to join my high school newspaper. So I was bused to white school starting in um, the second grade. And um, my high school, most of the black kids were bused from the black side of town. And I complained to our, my teacher that our high school newspaper never wrote about kids like me. And that's when he issued the challenge, that if I didn't like the way that my paper was writing or rendering us invisible, I should join the newspaper or shut up and don't come complain anymore. Uh, And those who know me know, if you challenge me to do something, I'm gonna do it. So uh, I joined my high school paper, and um, once I finished that class, I would ask that same teacher to keep giving me books. As soon as I would finish a book, I'd ask him to give me another book. And um, eventually that year he handed me the book by Lerone Bennett, which was called Before the Mayflower. And I think it was on page 28 or so that I came across the date 1619. And I just remember being shocked that people of African descent had been here before the Pilgrims got here and that slavery had begun before Plymouth Rock and understood at that point that it was intentional that we weren't taught that history, that it was intentional that part of the American narrative was not that we had been here uh, since 1619 before most – people who become white uh, arrived. So that's kind of the long answer. I've been thinking about the year 1619 for a very long time and wanting to um, really excavate the legacy of slavery for a very long time. And as the anniversary was approaching this year, I just kept thinking that it was probably one of the most consequential dates In the history of our country and that it was going to pass without most Americans even knowing 1619 existed without uh, most Americans commemorating it and that I had the opportunity at the New York Times to do something about that so um, in January I came back from book leave and the first thing I did was pitch the 1619 project and really argued that we should dedicate an entire issue of the magazine not writing a history of slavery but looking at the modern-day legacy and really arguing that almost nothing about modern society has been left untouched by our decision to be a slaveocracy.
10: In your essay which opens the project you start with this image of an American flag Mm -hmm. flying on your childhood home and I'm wondering when you first started to link this idea of patriotism and who it was really for when did that first start to connect for you?
4: Um, you mean as written in the essay?
10: Mm-hmm.
5: Or,
4: okay. Yeah. Uh, probably six months ago. Really? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, unpack that. So I, I, I opened the piece talking about my father always flying his flag in our front yard. And how when I was young, I was really embarrassed by that. Because I didn't understand how a black man born in Greenwood, Mississippi, during racial apartheid, Um, who I had seen um, really broken by our our society, how he could have that kind of outward sense of patriotism. And I really didn't understand it until I started writing the essay, honestly. Um, The way that I ended up opening the essay, I was on Twitter, which I occasionally am.
3: Really? <laughs> and,
4: and someone said something. I don't even remember. It was it was it was uh, some ridiculous thing about black people, or it was racist. And it made me so angry. Uh, I went back to my desk and I got out a uh, pen and pad and I hate wrote what became the top of the story uh, with ink to paper. Literally wrote like my dad always flew the flag and I don't understand it. Like why, why would he feel? This love for a country they didn't love him I didn't think it would actually end up in the piece but it did so I knew I was going to make the argument about black people's role in our democracy and that we had fought hardest to make our um, the ideals in our founding documents true but I didn't know I was going to actually end up writing kind of a patriotic essay Um, but the more that I read and really researched um, not just how black people were fighting for our rights but how even during slavery black people were using the ideals and the hypocrisy um, that was laid out by the founders to make the argument for not just our humanity but for universal humanity and universal rights and i just began to get this feeling that um who can claim america more than us and it was during that reporting this is kind of the beauty of being a writer or a journalist is you hope that while you're seeking to edify other people that you're also edifying yourself and I began to shift my own thinking. And it was not until that point that I really started to understand my dad. And you know, my dad was a veteran. Like so many black Americans, he joined the military thinking not only that it would be a way out economically, but that if black people have always believed that we serve our country, our country will see us as full citizens. And I came to understand that it wasn't a marker of his degradation, but it was actually a marker of him understanding that he has just as much right, if not more right, to claim his country as anyone else. And that's ultimately what I argue in that essay. Mm-hmm.
10: How do you then grapple with the that feeling, like, I'm, I'm willing to fight for this. Your father was willing to serve to fight for it. And even today, there's a question around whether or not black people can claim patriotism.
4: How do you grapple with that? I think that um, I think we don't let other people define patriotism for us. Mm -hmm. So patriotism to me is not the superficial wearing the flag pin. You don't critique your country. You don't try to fight to make your country live up to its ideals. That's a false patriotism. that's mythology, right? That's, that's deifying founders who were not deities. I think the patriotism that I'm arguing for is to say that even though our founders did not actually believe in the ideals that they wrote down, they didn't believe they applied to most citizens, not just uh, black Americans, but they didn't apply to women, they didn't apply to Native Americans, and at the time they didn't apply to white people who didn't own land, that even though they didn't believe in them, those ideals were right. They were moral, they were just, um, and true patriotism says that we have to fight to make our country actually live up to those ideals, and that has been the role that Black people have played, you know, since the moment we landed on the ship um, uh, on the shore of the 1619. When white people said we were property, we knew that we weren't. When white people said we didn't have uh, humanity or rights, um, we knew that that wasn't true, and we've been fighting. Um, I guess that's why I argue. No one's actually more patriotic than us, because while most Americans have been willing to fight wars abroad for democracy, we've had to fight abroad, and we've been willing to die right here on these soils to make them true, not just for us, but for everyone. And that's actual patriotism, not a blind faith. (laughs) Unraveling the connections
10: between the enslavement of black people and... Our democracy today, not just the democracy, but the educational system, um, the prison system. How did you all even begin to figure out how to tackle all of that?
4: Yeah. Um, So the conceit of the magazine, if you haven't read it, is that um, you can look across almost every aspect of American life, whether you think it has to do with slavery or not. And through very rigorous scholarship, we were going to show you that it does. So there were some stories that I knew we had to tell. I knew we had to tell the story of democracy. I knew we had to tell the story of capitalism. Uh, I wanted a story on why we have the stingiest social safety net of all Western industrialized countries. So that became the piece on why we don't have universal health care. I knew we needed a piece on music because uh, while it's probably the most obvious of the stories, um, how can you write a story about black Americans in America and not write about music? And then for the other stories, we convened a panel of historians, economists, sociologists, uh, the people that I read and respect who write about these issues. And we had them come in and we did a big, nerdy brainstorming session. It was like best day of my life. Um, and we just wrote lists. Like, what are the stories? And we really tried to have fidelity to the conceit, which is it had to be a modern phenomenon that you could trace back and link very directly to slavery, and hopefully one that would be surprising. And we came up with uh, the package of stories that we came up with. So it was a a winnowing and a refining. Uh, We really wanted the stories we could make the best arguments, but also that crossed a bunch of different aspects of American life. My dream for the magazine was that even if you didn't read a single article, just by flipping through the pages and reading the headline, you would be overwhelmed by the fact of uh, the centrality and foundation of slavery. That you would turn the page and say, "Oh wait, slavery is why there's a traffic jam in Atlanta. Atlanta, Slavery is why we eat so much sugar. Slavery is why uh, our geography looks like this. Slavery is why we have the most punitive uh, penal system in the country. Um, All of those things, I wanted people to be overwhelmed. And we tried to make sure that we were covering um, A very diverse uh, range of of American life but also that again we could make because clearly I knew some folks were going to come for us right with this reframing that we were doing people are not used to the bottom being centered people are not used to those who have been treated as a bottom of caste to be actually centered in the American story so we knew that our scholarship better be right and that people uh, would not be able to discount the facts so uh, fidelity to that was very important
10: Part of what was required, though, was also unraveling the mythology around certain revered American um, people. That was my favorite part. <laughs> <laughs>
5: uh,
10: President Lincoln, for, for instance, yes. who is heralded as the great emancipator, but who did not believe in equal rights for black people. So what were the challenges there in, in finding the scholarship
4: that you're talking about to unravel some of that mythology I mean that wasn't a challenge the thing about the 1619 project is it's not a it's not a hidden history uh, all of this stuff has been written there are tons of books tons of original documents in, and actually all you have to do is go to the words of those people themselves they were very explicit about how they felt about slavery about how they felt about black people about how they felt about political rights um, The challenge is most of us aren't taught that history, so we don't know it exists. One of the things that I'm really interested in is uh, the idea of national memory and how we uh, are taught things in a certain way to have a certain idea of who we are as a country. And clearly what the 1619 Project is doing is trying to subvert that national memory and that idea of who we have. And so you have to go after the founders, right? If you think about um, Thomas Jefferson, who we are taught, that it's kind of just marginal that he owned other human beings. Like we don't really need to deal with the fact of that. But at 33 years old, this man has enough wealth and enough education to be tasked with writing the declaration for a brand new country that was seeking to fight the most powerful empire in the world. You get that wealth and power on the backs of enslaved people who are working on a forced labor camp, right? Um, As he's writing the declaration, The words that are considered some of the most famous in the English language, which is all men are created equal, endowed with inalienable rights. His enslaved brother-in-law is there to serve him, to keep him comfortable as he's writing these words um, about freedom. And he knows that even his own family members will enjoy none of those freedoms as he's writing. Um, You know, 10 of the first 12 presidents were enslavers. Part of the reason we wanted to become our own country was the colonists' fear that Britain was going to eventually abolish slavery. If we're not taught that, how can we grapple with this legacy? If we're not taught that, you know, one of the most common things I hear um, pushed back to my work is white people in the North fought to free you guys, right? Fought to free, died for your freedom. Um, Most white northerners were not dying to end slavery. And Lincoln says himself, most white people don't care either way about black people. Uh, They just want to save the union. And he actually blames black Americans for the Civil War. If we did not exist, if we had not been enslaved, there would be no war. That, um, that history is critical to our understanding of who we are. And we have to understand that the, the founding paradox, which is a nation, you know, yes, slavery is an ancient institution. And many societies had slavery. But only one was founded based on the individual rights of men. Only one was founded on the idea that all men are created equal and that is also a country that was depriving um, absolute rights from one fifth of its population and the way that we have grappled with that lie um, is to one, marginalize it and to pretend slavery wasn't central and then to marginalize the people who are the everyday reminder of that lie, right? Black people are the most inconvenient people in America because the 40 million descendants are only here because our country was founded on a lie. And so we have been punished for that for 400 years.
10: So for people who maybe haven't read
4: the magazine or listened to the podcast, I want you to
10: just use one example to connect the dots um, from the enslavement of black people to modern America, education, whatever you'd like, but just to give us that framework to understand 1619.
4: Sure, so um, what was important for me in the project is not only to show that slavery was foundational to uh, the United States and in our DNA, but to show that um, we have never been able to contain the harm of slavery just to the people who were enslaved. And this idea that you can contain the harms of racism just to black people is false. And that's why I wanted a story on why of all the Western industrialized countries, we have the stingiest social safety net. We are the only ones without universal health care. Uh, one of the few that don't have universal college. Uh, our parental leave is amongst the stingiest. We have the lowest rate of labor unions uh, in the industrialized world. Uh, and that all can be traced back to slavery. And so there's a, a piece in there about why we don't have universal health care. And the very first uh, universal health care program comes out of the Freedmen's Bureau at the end of slavery when overnight four million people are liberated. They have no money, they have no home, they have no health care, they have they have nothing. It's a liberation that just means you're free on paper and you you have nothing. And uh, very quickly disease begins to spread in this population. And the Freedmen's Bureau realizes if they don't contain this disease, it's going to start to spread to white people too. Um, And so they found the Freedmen's Bureau, which is offering universal health care. But there's immediate pushback with this idea that you shouldn't give black people things because it'll make them lazy. So think about this. You're the people who had labored for 250 years without earning a dime for their labor, who had built the material wealth of this country. And the belief is if you help them to transition from slavery to freedom, that you will be creating a dependent people who are getting something they don't deserve. So you trace that, so we end up killing uh, universal healthcare in the Freedmen's Bureau hospitals, and every effort since then to try to get universal healthcare has died because white Americans have believed that black people will get something they don't deserve. And you see that rhetoric even with the expansion of Medicaid, the only place it doesn't expand is in the former Confederate states. And it is the belief that they will hurt large numbers of white Americans if they can hurt more black people. And the polling on this is very clear. If uh, when they poll white Americans if white people think majority of white Americans if they think black people will benefit from a social program they oppose it if they think that black people will not benefit from the social program they support it Um, so you look at things like the New Deal the way that we get Social Security is to exclude most of the two professions that black people worked which was farming and domestic so They passed Social Security with a loophole that excludes most black laborers. And you see this again and again in our history. And I think that was important because it doesn't logically make sense why we're the only country that's this wealthy, that doesn't provide basic health care for our citizens, until you realize that slavery makes everything illogical and that there's a logic to racism. And the racism is you'll hurt white people to hurt more black people. In the magazine, I don't know. I gonna get this real, huh? <laughs> in the magazine, you—you can not it.
10: In the magazine, one of the things you spell out in in pretty excruciating detail is some of the violence mm-hmm. that um, was acted out, especially among veterans. You highlight that. And I'm going to quote you here. You write, this violence was meant to terrify and control black people, but perhaps just as important, it served as a psychological bomb for white supremacy. Explain how violence, lynching, violence in slavery, how it worked as that tool, but also as that bomb.
4: Sure. Uh, So this is really important to me that uh, we do not pull back on how horrible slavery was. Part of the way that we have uh, psychologically dealt with the lie at our founding is to downplay the atrocity of slavery and to make people think that enslavement was no different from being an indentured servant or from being a Chinese person working on the railroad. Um, There was nothing that existed in America and there was nothing that existed in the world like chattel slavery and um the violence of chattel slavery served you know this dual effect one um when you have large numbers of black people no one wants to work against their will no one voluntarily submits to slavery the only way you can control these populations is through fear and fear is that we will we will meet the most atrocious violence upon you if you step out of line and we will put your head on a stake or we will dismember you or we will beat you in front until uh, you die from uh, the lash in front of your whole community to keep you in check and force you to do what no human being would naturally do Um, one thing that should be clear we, we think a lot about you know, that these uh, people who enslaved and allowed slavery were people of their time. They were, but people of their time knew that slavery was wrong. There wasn't a single person. Um, I mean, you could read in Thomas Jefferson's writing, and what he said is if, you know, if God is just, we will pay for these crimes, right? They, they know that what they're doing is wrong. They don't care because there's so much profit to be made. Um, So then you need a psychological, you need to create something psychologically that makes what you're doing okay. The fact that you are selling children away from their mothers uh, on the auction block, the fact that uh, you are enslaving your own children, the fact that you are beating people to force them to work for you, you have to develop some way to feel like what you're doing is not immoral. And the violence actually serves, I, I write it serves as a balm because what you find is after the... Um, Revolutionary War when we can no longer blame Britain on slavery we have to own slavery now because we have started a new country and we have chosen to continue slavery Uh, you see this intensity uh, intensifying of the caste system and the separation that black people are not human black people are not citizens so we're not actually uh, a contradiction because if black people aren't people then the Constitution doesn't protect us and the violence then becomes a way of denying the humanity And by denying the humanity, you deny the contradiction that you're treating people inhumane. So the more uh, inhumane that you treat people, the more you can justify that they're not like us because we wouldn't dismember a human being, right? Uh, We wouldn't uh, castrate a human being, string that human being up, burn that human being alive, and cut that human being's fingers off and display them in a storefront in Atlanta. You wouldn't do that to people. So that violence then, allows us to have that distance between the people we're doing this to and pretending that we're not people. So um, after the Civil War, after Reconstruction, you see that type of very, very grotesque violence. That's when you see the rise of lynchings. Um, That's when you see this wave of just uh, the most appalling violence in every story I felt had to to tell that story, that we cannot look away um, from what we have done To black people that the only way that we were able to control black folks was through terrorism Um, and the only way that white Americans could justify what they did was through uh, enacting violence on black people to separate us from humanity no other race in this country has experienced that that's just a fact Um, but I struggled with it too Uh, for instance in my piece there's a photo of a lynching and initially I was like we need to show everything and there was a big photo of a lynching And probably a week before we went to uh, print, my gut was just really hurting about it. And I just kept thinking, black folks don't need to see this. Like, it's dehumanizing. And we we are dehumanized enough. Um, And so we ended up running another photo. So there was this balance between wanting to be very honest about the violence, Um, especially considering the way that black people are stereotyped as violent, right? When you think about how the stereotype has been turned upon us that we are violent um when the whole history of this country has been white americans being violent against us um, but also not wanting to do more harm to communities that have already been dehumanized Mm -hmm. so that that balance was difficult
10: that reminds me there's a line um eve ewing who most people here will be familiar with chicago and submitted a poem for um for the project and and there's a line that has just sort of settled into my bones The poem is about Phyllis Mm Wheatley, who is the first African-American published poet. And Eve writes, how many I am to be a real human girl. What turn of phrase evidences a righteous heart. If I know of Ovid, may I keep my children. Mm -hmm. Oh, but still, (laughs) that one still, it still gets me because it, it uncovers this struggle for there to be an acknowledgement of humanity. Yes. And I'm curious where you think we
4: are with that today. Um, so I write in my essay, right, that the degradation serves a purpose. So the way that we are often taught to think about it is, and I hear this all the time, slavery ended 150 years ago, get over it. But the anti-black racism, the, the belief that black people don't feel pain the same. There's an article in there about that, which is still a, a belief in modern medicine. Uh, the belief that we are not as human, um, the degradation is necessary after slavery to justify the past sin. So you can't say that um, we are enslaving you because you're not human and then liberate, you're liberated and now welcome you as our equals. Because then we have to acknowledge that everything was a lie before and that we were uh, immoral before. And that development then of the belief in the inherent um, inferiority of black people continues after slavery and clearly continues today. And you have to have this sense that, um, you know, if we were allowed to succeed after slavery, then it gives lie to the whole idea of America and the whole system. Uh, if we were allowed to work the jobs that they worked. So they had to deny us the ability to work jobs that white people worked. They had to keep us out of white educational institutions. They had to try to deprive us of the ability to get an education. They had to deprive us of the ability to create our own art and our own music because every success that we had would give lie to the idea that we were enslaved because we were inferior and not worthy. And you see that strain to this day. I could ask any person in here, I don't care what your race, to name 10 stereotypes about black people, and you could name it in five seconds. Where do you get it from? Where does it come from? Your parents didn't have to sit you down and say, black people are lazy, black people steal, black people are violent, black people aren't as intelligent. You just know it. And you know it because we have been bred to know it. We are awash in the justification for slavery. And our children, we, we all suffer for it. Um, I think this is why, in general, I'm not optimistic about whether we will ever resolve our original sin, because how do you purge something that's in your DNA? Hmm. We're about to all start crying. I cried a <laughs> lot on this project. Um, i whew, wow, I, hmm the cold. <laughs> <laughs> People don't come to get an lip- uplifting talk if you come to see me. It's not going to happen. Oh, I not what ed- I do. I wasn't expecting that, okay. but gosh, usually I'm able to hold it together. Um,
10: I think part of what's happening is that this is happening in the same context of another conversation we recently had on my show um, with Natalie Moore and a project she worked on called 1919 mm-hmm. about, Red the, summer. Mm-hmm. about the race riot here in Chicago and during that conversation, Natalie and, and our other two panelists said they never learned about that history in mm-hmm. school. What is in 1619, I didn't learn about it in school. You didn't learn about it in school. And what is what is clear is that there is both a hole in our history and what's there has been sanitized. Yes. But how do we fix it? When you think about the way textbooks end up in classrooms, I mean, here in in Chicago, uh, CPS CEO Janice Jackson is providing 1619 to all the schools. But that's just
4: one little pocket. Yeah. um, I had to self-educate and most of what even got me to where I am was my determination to learn on my own because you were not going to get this history in school. And, and there's a reason for that. Um, I think about how much shame our children, black children grow up with. The shame of knowing that our ancestry began with people enslaving us. The shame of not having our own names and not feeling like we have our own culture. And when you learn this history, you have an empowerment. Um, You start to resist, right? This is why we are the only race of people in the history of the United States for whom it was illegal to read and write, Mm -hmm. because there was an understanding that education led to resistance, that you would not accept your condition if you knew how your condition was created. And I think that's what I'm trying to do with the 1619 Project, is to say, uh, clearly no project can fix, all that is wrong with this country but it can empower you it can it can expose the architecture uh, I study history because I would see you know I was bused for two hours every day to a white school and literally through the windows of my bus I saw the racial landscape of America and I remember as a kid seeing how uh, as we Left the black side of town and got closer to the white side of town. We crossed the bridge to the white side of town. All of a sudden, the houses got nicer. There were more businesses. The potholes seemed to be fixed in the in the uh, streets. The schools were better. And even as a kid, I didn't understand that because I know the message that media and society was giving us, which is that black people wouldn't want better. But then I would see how hard everybody in my family worked. And I'm talking about the type of job that would break almost everybody in this room, right? Like in beef packing plants, jobs where they would come home at the end of the day and their their hands would be so swollen they couldn't make a fist. These were hardworking people who could never get ahead. And it didn't make sense. But when I started to study history, everything started to click into place. And I started to realize it was not us, that something was wrong with us. It was that the society was created to intentionally have everything that we experienced was intentionally created, and that's power. And I think once you get that power, it can't be taken away. So I can say probably the proudest thing um, and and the most surprising thing that's happened on the 1619 Project is we partnered with the Pulitzer Center on a curriculum. The Pulitzer Center is a sponsor of this event tonight. And uh, the 1619 Project, published six weeks ago, it's being taught in 2,000 school districts in the country in every state in America. And so, I never thought that that would happen. (laughs) And what I hope that means, I mean, I think about myself and what it would have meant for me as a child Mm -hmm. to have ever been taught about slavery this way, to have ever been taught for a single moment that black people were never the problem. To have ever been taught for a single moment uh, that we were more than just the sum of somebody owning us, that we fought every step of the way for not just our liberation, but for the liberation of all marginalized people in this country, what that would have meant for me. And to know that every high school in Chicago is now studying this, that... uh, Houston Public Schools is, is writing this into a, a four credit class that every student will take uh, in their curriculum um, to think that all of these black kids, but kids in general, American children, may not have to relearn this history as adults because they were taught it right in the first place. Mm-hmm. And that that can be the first step to actually uh, making right all the wrongs that have been done. Yeah.
10: We have to turn to questions, but I was hoping as people are making their way to the <laughs> microphone, which is coming down aisle if you would just read the last few graphs of your essay for us. There
4: you go. Okay. You want me to start with when I was a child? Mm -hmm. Okay. So um, as we said, the essay starts with me not understanding why My dad flew this flag, and then it kind of goes through uh, the history of black people really fighting to make our democracy real, um, to actually force our country to live up to its ideals. And then it kind of ends with a scene um, of me when I was a child. When I was a child, I must have been in fifth or sixth grade. A teacher gave our class an assignment intended to celebrate the diversity of the great American melting pot. She instructed each of us to write a short report on our ancestral land and then draw that nation's flag. As she turned to write the assignment on the board, the other black girl in class locked eyes with me. Slavery had erased any connection we had to an African country. And even if we tried to claim the whole continent, there was no African flag. It was hard enough being one of two black kids in this class, and this assignment would be just another reminder of the distance between the white kids and us. In the end, I walked over to the globe near my teacher's desk, picked a random African country, and claimed it as my own. I wish now that I could go back to the younger me and tell her that her people's ancestry started here, on these lands, and to boldly, proudly, draw the stars and those stripes of the American flag. We were told once, by virtue of our bondage, that we could never be American but it was by virtue of our bondage that we became the most American of all. I'm um, oh, sorry, before we go, I just had to shout out Reverend Jesse Jackson who's sitting here in the front row. We owe this man a great debt, as as close to democracy as we had. He's played a tremendous role in helping to get us there, and uh, just so much respect, and thank you for uh, honoring us with your presence tonight, Reverend. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Sorry about that.
0: Um, So hi, my name's Cavell, and I'm a fourth year here in the college. Um, I really like your metaphor of like slavery as like, America's original sin. And so I had the privilege of seeing ta Coates in this space on Saturday. So I'm wondering, what are your thoughts on reparations and how that, does that even you know, like, fix this original sin? Does it fix any portion of it? Yeah. Uh,
4: so nothing can fix what's, what's happened. And uh, my answer to that is you cannot read, if you actually read the project, Start to finish. You cannot read the project and not understand this, that something is old. And that something is not merely social programs. Um, so, yeah, I think that um, I believe in reparations. I believe the reparations are old. I believe the reparations are old in terms of a cash payment, as well as uh, much more rigorous enforcement of our civil rights laws and other social programs. And I think we really need to question why people are so opposed to making restitution for what was done. Um, yeah, y'all definitely should clap for Thank that. You. One of the things that I, that I say at the close of my essay, which I think is a good reminder, um, I'm 43 years old and I'm part of the first generation of black Americans in the history of the United States who was born with full legal citizenship rights. Yep. We have been here since 1619 and a decade before I was born, it was perfectly legal to discriminate against people simply because they descended from American slaves. Mm-hmm. So when we think that this is ancient history, and when people say, you never suffered slavery, well, my father grew up in racial apartheid. My grandmother couldn't vote until she left the South as a grown woman. We need to understand that this legacy is with us right now, that there are living victims. I just pointed out Reverend Jackson, who was also born into a country that practiced apartheid. So we really need to question why we will not address the legacy of slavery. And it comes from that same idea that we, we justify our sin by saying black people are undeserving. Um, but we actually hurt our entire country through that denial.
10: Hi, my name is Kim. I'm a second year in the college. You mentioned earlier that as much as the founding principles of the country and the constitution and whatnot are righteous and, just that the people who wrote them did not believe in them. And I think it's safe to say that most of the students in this room and probably the rest of us too are expected to read a lot of books written in that same situation. So Locke, Hobbes, all of the quote unquote classics. So my question for you is how do you deal with those old like foundational-ish texts? Is there anything to be gained from them and how do we separate out the virulent bigotry from anything that might be of use
4: i mean yeah of course right this the 1619 project and and myself i'm not arguing that we erase history i'm not arguing that you don't read the declaration of independence just because uh thomas jefferson didn't necessarily believe it applied to most people um you have to read all of those texts one they help us understand who we are And, and it's not that those men had no value But it is also, again, let's not deify these men. Let's say that these were men who were very hypocritical, who had lots of contradictions, um, but who also had a vision that black people actually were to perfect. So it's a matter of when you teach about Thomas Jefferson, when you talk about Monticello, let's call it what it was. It was a slave labor camp. Let's talk about how he built his wealth. But let's also say that he wrote some amazing words that really set the roadmap for who we are. I'm not arguing that 1776 doesn't matter. I'm just saying that 1619 matters just as much, and we have to have the ability to teach those, both of those things at the same time.
5: Thank you. You're welcome. Um,
6: hello, my name is Savannah Bowman. I'm a first year in the college, and um, in the coming years, there's expected to be like significant shifts. Significant shifts to like. Um, the minority population becoming the majority and um, just that lens in general and I wonder do you think that that will significantly impact the curriculum and how um, we teach students who are now going to be in the minority um, like about slavery and the past um, like implications that they had
4: okay so I'm just gonna push back on your frame in just a little bit Um, the only, so one, there's no such thing as majority-minority, right, that's a an oxymoron. And the assumption that all people who are not white will somehow group together and vote as a bloc, <laughs> yeah, no, right, it's not, it's not logical. Yeah. White people will still be the largest group in a plurality. What well, we also know is history teaches us that whiteness expands as it needs to. So more people will be brought into whiteness. Um, you know if the Republicans stop doing whatever they're doing they could break off a large percentage of the Hispanic population easy right they could actually expand uh, the idea of what whiteness is just like they did for the Irish the Italian the Polish the Greek. so I I'm not under no illusions that we will one day be a country run by those on the bottom we will not and you can look now um, at voting patterns right black folks voted almost 9 to 1 or 9 to 1 against Trump, but other racial groups were more divided. They split, they didn't vote for Trump, uh, the majority, but they were much, much more divided, particularly uh, Latinos on the vote. So I don't think that we can have a lot of hope that. Our changing demographics are going to lead to some greater epiphany about who our country should be. And I think you can look at Donald Trump as a reaction to our changing demographics and the sense among many white Americans that they were losing something as our country diversified. And the last thing I'll say on that uh, is look at the South, which was already a, in many places, a minority white place that was still run by white folks. You can look at New York City, a minority white place, but where's the power and the wealth? It is not in the hands of black and brown people. So if it is, if we are going to see a change, it's going to be because black and brown folks form a coalition and force it, but it's not going to happen just because there's a demographic shift.
6: Thank
4: you. You're welcome. That was hopeful, right? Yeah. (laughs) Hi, thank you for being
8: here. I'm Myra, Myra Kwaja. I graduated a few years ago, and now I work with a group of journalists in Chicago that investigates police misconduct. So I would love your advice, given your experience. How do you find balance in the subject, of, like in the content of the work you do, dealing with really difficult images, archival materials, research? How do you find balance in your mental health? Um, and then <laughs> similarly, when you're inviting other people in to, to read and engage with your work, um, what are some of the ways that you, practical ways you hope people act on your work? Something I'm struggling with in journalism is like giving people really difficult content to grapple with, but then I think people struggle with knowing what to do with it.
4: Uh, thank you for those questions. Uh, if you know me, then you know my answer is going to be I don't deal with that I just drink a lot of bourbon. Uh, <laughs> 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 uh, <laughs> I'm actually not playing uh,
5: <laughs>
4: I don't have a good answer it this work is very very emotionally taxing uh, very um, and and because it's not really work for me I don't you know leave it at the door when I leave work at 6 p.m. or 7 p.m. I, I, I'm thinking about it all the time uh, I never have cried so much on anything as I have working on the 1619 Project, because to be immersed in the most horrible things that have ever been done to your people for eight months straight, um, to be looking at images and words, and um, not just my reporting, but every piece that was in there uh, was very, very hard, and and I don't think I dealt with it well, Um, and my husband will certainly tell you, he just learned to stay the hell away from me. I don't have great advice. I I tell people to take care of themselves, but I don't actually know how. Um, I think that you have to have your group of folks who are doing similar work, who you guys can sit and really talk through the emotions that you're feeling and not pretend. You know, I I don't believe in this uh, sense of journalistic distance anyway, it doesn't exist when you're writing about your own people or when you're writing about oppression. Um, but you have to have folks who at least can kind of try to help you work through it. But I don't do a good job at it. Uh, it's, it's hard. Uh, what was your second? Oh, what was your second part? It was like, what do you Me want too. people
8: to do with the work after they engage with it?
4: I don't expect you to do anything. Um, because I write about the most deeply entrenched societal issues. And I'm not writing to, like, convert Trump supporters. I'm writing to try to get liberal white people to do what they say they believe in. Um, so... i say this kind of flippantly, but the beauty of being a journalist uh, to me is I just expose the problem and then it's up to y'all to fix it. (laughs) I don't have to come up with the solutions, but what what I, the most that I hope will come out of my work is you can't pretend you didn't know, and you can't pretend that we are making choices, right? That it's not simply that these systems exist and I don't play a role in it. We choose to sustain the inequality that we see every day through our individual choices and actions. And I just want people to have to confront the fact that they are making a choice and they can't say that they didn't know better. And I don't expect anything more from my work than that. Thank you.
2: Hello, my name is David McMillan. I'm a fourth year PhD student here at the university um, at the Harris School of Public Policy. You go. And a lot. Thank you. I appreciate that. A lot of my work, um, you know, it's very solutions oriented and it's taken me in a direction of focusing on policy areas that seem to really have an effect, a positive effect on both black and white people and really just every race of people. And so an example of that would be early childhood education and restorative practices, disciplinary practices in schools, um, making sure everyone has access to health care. So there are all these different kinds of policy positions that we know would really help everyone and I'm really alarmed by something that you said even though I know you're right which is that um even you know it like if if a racist white person knows you know that a certain policy uh, position would really help them for sure um and yet it benefits you know black people then they would not support it Um, I'm basically alarmed because I'm concerned about uh, the extent to which like all the efforts I'm putting in the efforts of a lot of People, researchers and activists who are trying to come up with these solutions um, that basically their all their efforts would be in vain because people won't even be willing to to support something that benefits them which goes a, against these rational choice ideas that our school like tries to support but it's, and it's very I'm alarmed by it and my question is basically even though I know you said that you're you're not like trying to Come up with all the solutions, but I at least need like an idea. After hearing that, of like <laughs> what, like what should I do? Like <laughs> if if they're not even like if, if they're not going to support the things that would actually benefit them, how would you how would you go about trying to like convince someone like that to to support like a a policy that would benefit them?
4: So you work in policy, right? And yeah. you're asking me to tell you how to do it. I know. I, I, I
0: don't.
4: Uh, so let, let me just say I, I have yeah. said this like three times if you're looking for hope or inspiration I don't have it to offer okay. um, I study history and there's nothing uh, hopeful about history uh, <laughs> but what I will say and I, and I offered this actually to uh, the small group of students that I met with earlier which is even though I am NOT a hopeful person we do need people who believe the system can be transformed and uh, I think often in my work uh, when I'm feeling in a really bad place, I think about uh, the black abolitionists and I think about the civil rights movement and how there's no way that you know when Frederick Douglass gives the speech on what to the slave is the Fourth of July that he would could have seen that slavery would end within a decade. Um, That there was no way that you know. The, the people who died in the movement mega Evers, when you think about people like that that they actually they had to believe they could topple apartheid even though everything about their society would tell them that they couldn't um, so I think we have to believe that uh, these systems can be toppled even if I don't and we need people who will fight that fight even if you know I'll, I'll write about it and I will cheer you on but I don't think it ultimately would be successful because sometimes it will and um, I can't tell you what that will look like um, the thing about racism is it, it's both not logical and it is logical if you believe that uh, there are stakes in whiteness and that whiteness is property and that whiteness is something of value in and of itself then the decisions made around racism are logical how does one convince people that those things are not logical I don't have the answers. Um, I'm making a moral argument, so my my method is guilt, but I don't think guilt moves most people. Um, But part of, I think, what the history telling in the 1619 Project is to, to at least help people understand, we think that our society has to be this way and it doesn't. And that's because we haven't learned about all the choices along the way, and all the times where we started to do something different and didn't. And if you give people a vision that actually we did try universal health care for a while. Actually, there were these moments where we tried, you know, during Reconstruction to actually create a multiracial democracy when we did try to take care of our citizens. If you show people that this was not inevitable, then I think you give people the power to work for another system. And that's, I guess, part of what we have to do. All of us have to tell stories and have to convince people to see a world that, that does not exist.
2: Thank you.
4: Which is not policy, but. <laughs>
9: um, hi, my name is Chase. I'm a second year at the college. I'm studying sociology. Um, and my question sort of relates to uh, race and politics. Um, so, throughout history, we've seen a lot of examples of people, um, people of color, like in the institutions trying to make these changes, and people outside of these institutions. Um, sort of bringing pressure onto the institutions themselves and I was wondering um, what are sort of the consequences and benefits that you've seen of both and (laughs) if uh, you know one is more effective than the other
4: Uh, (laughs) no I don't think one is more effective than other I think uh, you have to be applying pressure both from within and without And each person has to decide what they're willing to give up to apply that pressure. So I I think about myself as a journalist. Um, I could not work at the New York Times. I could work at a black news organization. I could start my own news organization. And that is an important thing that applies a certain pressure. Would we have seen the 1619 land in the world the way that it did if it were not in the New York Times? Is there any other news organization in the world that could have made the 1619 Project land in the world uh, the way that it did? Um, and I don't think so. So I think you have to have both of those things. And one of the things I when, I, when I think about the 1619 Project, one of the reasons it meant so much to black people was because it was in the New York Times. It was in the paper of record, uh, the place where 50 years from now, 100 years from now, when people want to understand America and, and what we look like today. They look in the New York Times and also a institution that doesn't have a great record uh, of how it has portrayed black people Mm -hmm. to have bring our power into those institutions. If you can do it in a transformative way. I don't believe in tokenism. I don't believe in uh, phenotype diversity, but not political and cultural diversity. Uh, If we are able to come into those institutions in an empowered way, I think it matters.